So Money, episode 929, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. August 23rd, 2019. It is Ask Farnoosh Friday. And I have some disappointing news. Y'all, Dancing with the Stars came out with its new lineup for the latest season. I wasn't selected. What's it going to take? You know, I've surpassed 10 million downloads on this podcast. I've written a few books. I'm no James Vanderbeek. Anyway, I'm hoping that someday I'll still get that phone call. And if anybody out there knows someone who knows someone who can get me an audition tape to the top of the pile, uh, let me know. Would really appreciate it. All right. This Friday, we have a number of questions through Instagram. And uh, to put it in the words of somebody who just started following me on Instagram, she said, why did I wait so long? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty active on Instagram, not in the feed so much, but in stories. I like to just kind of go live or post things and also answer your questions on the go. A lot of you know that I might respond with a video or a quick email, a quick or a quick message back. And before we get to those questions, I want to, as promised, go right now to our iTunes page for So Money and select a recent reviewer. So much like I started at the very beginning of this uh, podcast back in 2015, to encourage people to leave reviews, I decided that every week I would select a new reviewer to receive a 15-minute money session with me for free over the phone. And I thought to reinstate that because, you know, we're getting pretty close to a thousand reviews. I want to get us there sooner than later. And not just because it feeds my ego, um, but it is really helpful for reviews to be out there about your show as people want to know where to subscribe, what to listen to. And iTunes really does reward podcasts that have reviews. It shows that people are listening. And look, it doesn't have to be five stars. Obviously, I would love the glowing reviews. It's really an opportunity for you to give feedback. And I'm going to try to be neutral when it comes to selecting people to have these uh, 15 minute money sessions with me. I'm not going to necessarily pick you because you gave the quote unquote best review. I want to give everybody the opportunity. So this week I'm going to pick Kiar Davis who wrote a review. So good. I need to take notes. A five-star review. Uh, This person says, I discovered so money this summer and it has everything I crave. A long, unexplored history, compelling guests, personal stories, and actionable information. I have an MBA and consider myself quite financially literate, yet I still learn a lot on a daily basis from this podcast. I really appreciate this review, especially coming from somebody with an MBA. I don't have an MBA, so I feel pretty cool that someone with an MBA thinks that this show is smart and keeps them learning. So Kiar Davis, you left a review on August 19th. Please get in touch at farnoosh at farnoosh.tv. Let me know that you are the, the kind soul that left this review. I will be in touch with a link where we can connect 
for our 15-minute money session. You can also connect with me on Instagram, on direct message. Direct message me there. Let me know that you are the Kiar Davis who left the review and we will connect. Thank you so much. So yeah, anyone who leaves a review, every week you have the opportunity, the chance to be selected at random for a free 15-minute money session with me. So if you're interested in that, would love for you to leave a review. All right, so let's hit the mailbag over on the Instagram. And our first question is from Chad, who also left a really kind review. P.S. He let me know that. And um, rather than doing a 15-minute money session with him, he suggested we do the question on the show this way. He left a question and he said that um, he is having a – He is at a crossroads about what to do with long-term care insurance. Should he buy it? He's 37 years old. He's a young candidate for long-term care. Typically, long-term care insurance is purchased in your 50s. And he's 37 and he's thinking about it because he does have a bit of family history, he says, and worried about needing long-term care insurance. Now, just as a refresher, what is long-term care insurance, okay? I'm on the National Institute on Aging website and it says, long-term care involves a variety of services designed to meet a person's health or personal care needs during a short or long period of time. These services help people live as independently and safely as possible when they can no longer perform everyday activities on their own. Now, specifically everyday activities, these are called activities of daily living, ADLs, and includes bathing, dressing, grooming, using the toilet, eating, and moving around, like getting out of a bed or getting into a chair. And your benefits kick in when you are unable to perform at least two of these activities. So he's wondering if he should get this. And the thing is, he says, I have been shopping around. The options in the market are not great. That I believe, you know, the cost for long-term care has increased. I think I read about 9% year over year. And a lot of people, they're discovering they're overpaying for long-term care. There's a lot of different kinds of long-term care you can get. There's the sort of policy that will cover you for an extended period of time in a nursing home, which can be very expensive. Nursing home facilities are quite costly. But people are realizing now as they're going through the aging years that they're not staying in nursing homes for an extended period of time. Even if they have dementia, even if they have Alzheimer's, they are then going and living with family. Um, And so you may have bought this really expensive policy that you're not really able to take advantage simply because your needs in your later years are not as uh, you measured when you originally bought into this policy. So he is telling me, Chad, that he's considering instead of long-term care insurance, getting a whole life insurance policy that has what's known as an accelerated care benefit. This is an additional rider that you can get onto the policy that allows him to access his own death benefit to pay for long-term care if he needs it. And he says, if I don't ever need long-term care, then I have a nice life insurance product with cash value. Curious to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, in general, we know that 
whole life insurance is a more expensive way to go versus a term life insurance policy. Term life insurance policy is for a limited period of time. Sometimes people get it for 15 years or 20 years, whereas whole life insurance covers you until the end of your life. And it is more expensive on a monthly basis to pay for whole life insurance. Here's the thing. If you start your whole life insurance policy today, you just got to be sure Chad, that you can absolutely make those payments every month for the indefinite future. You know, and I have read that when the going gets tough and let's say, gosh, you lose your job or money gets tight, the whole life insurance policy for those who have it is kind of the first thing that drops. And then what a waste, right? You've spent all this money buying into it and, uh, then you miss a month's payment for whatever reason and it's completely lapsed and you're done. You can no longer you know, have this insurance policy. That's a big risk and it is a risk that people are realizing a lot. And so I would just caution that. You know, the other thing is that I was reading about, you know, people who are weighing getting insurance versus not getting insurance. And, and here's the thing, you know, what if you invested into an index fund for the next 25 years, okay? So yeah, you can take out a life insurance policy with a required monthly premium. You have to pay it every single month in order to continue to keep this life insurance active. Or you can just take that money that you were going to put into a life insurance policy and put it in the market. Now, not a guarantee, obviously, like life insurance, that you will have this money that you want, this exact amount that you need or want in the foreseeable future, in the future. But, you know, you're 37 years old, unless you are thinking that you're going to get sick in the next five years or 10 years and need some sort of major financial cushion to, to help you through those years, I think that there might be something to be said about putting money in the market, let's say an index fund, over the next 25 years. I just did a little bit of math for you. So if you invested $200 a month for the next 30 years, and that, let's say, was earning about 4% on average every year, which I think is kind of conservative looking at you know where the market typically goes over a 30-year period. The average return is usually between 6 and 8%. So I'm using 4% as a pretty low rate of return. That is going to yield you $135,000 in 30 years, that $200 a month, which may be around what you might pay for a whole life insurance policy at your age, assuming you're a non-smoker. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the rates are that you're getting quoted, but $200 a month for the next 30 years, put it aside, you're going to have over $130,000 for your future. That's assuming the market does around 4% a year. Yes, you'll have to pay capital gains on that, but still, it's a lot more of a flexible option for you. If there's a month or a year that you don't want to pay into it, fine. The money's not going to go away. You know, you're kind of creating your own policy here, your own life insurance cushion. I don't know. I think that's something to consider. You know, there here it's really a measure of math. It's a measure of reality and risk, and it's a measure of what can you afford. And what would happen if you had a bad month or a bad year of, of earning? And, and could you keep up with these payments and these insurance payments? I also looked and saw what it would cost you for a 20-year term life insurance policy. You know, there are 
lots of different shapes and sizes of life insurance policies, but the most popular options for people around your age is about a half a million dollar policy. If you're a non-smoker, you're 40 years old, it's about $35 a month. So I don't know if you need life insurance, term life insurance. I don't know if you've got kids, if you have dependents. If you do and you don't have life insurance, I would look into a term policy. Just to give you some more links to look into for more research. I was looking around and I saw that there's a website called genworth.com slash cost of care. This is a good site for you to go and see what the estimated cost of things like adult day healthcare, assisted living facilities, nursing homes might cost in your community in the future. That can give you a good assessment of like, okay, if I am going to get a long-term care policy, realistically, how much of a policy, what size amount policy do I want to take out? Because it is happening where people are realizing they overinsured themselves. The Center for Retirement Research is another great website. That's crr.bc.edu. And bottom line, I think if you're looking at this whole life insurance policy with the added benefit, the accelerated care benefit, I think you just have to be real with yourself and say, if I'm going to buy into this, can I make these monthly payments for the next how many years? I don't know. And if you're worried about it, I think that you want to look at alternatives where you feel like you're more in control and you're not maybe overextending yourself financially. Uh, So that's my advice. Again, not knowing all the details, but this is just a little bit of surface research that I did for you and my two cents. I think maybe you want to look into investing that money instead of buying a life, a whole life insurance policy. If you do need life insurance, that's a whole separate thing. I think you should get that. You should get it maybe as a term policy. It doesn't have to be very expensive. It could be 30, 40 bucks a month, depending on you know your health and your smoking habits and things like that. If you are interested in whole life insurance at the end, you've done all the research and all the math, I think you just got to be really confident that you're going to be able to make that payment because it would be such a bummer if you couldn't and then you've lost out on all of those contributions and you've lost out on that policy. So that would crush me personally. Good luck to you and thanks so much again, Chad, for that really kind review. All right, next up is Elena, and she says, Hey, Farnoosh, I'm a big fan of So Money, and I'm a regular follower on Instagram. Thanks, Elena. She says that, What are your thoughts on the best way to refuse lending money to a friend when you know that they will not return it? I had to go through this twice, and both times I feel I ended up explaining myself to the other person too much. Is there a quote-unquote right way to go about this? Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much, Ellie. Yeah, I don't think you need to over-explain yourself, and and right for you to not want to give money to a friend that you believe will not pay you back. I mean, the reality is is that if if a friend asks you for money, you know, we want to consider it. But very importantly, consider what is the likelihood of this friend paying you back? And do you have the means to give them the money with the risk of the money not coming back? How will that hurt you financially? And how will that hurt you emotionally? You know, so if you find yourself just being really cautious and worried about this, then I think that you need to follow your gut. And I would say to this person very kindly, very straightforwardly, I understand, but I'm unfortunately not in a place where I can lend anyone money right now. 
And so you're not really making it about them specifically. You're just saying, you know, generally, I'm just not really in a good position to lend money to anybody right now. Is there any other way I can support you? I think it's really important to finish by saying, hey, I'm sorry, but is there some other way that I can help you? Clothes for a job interview, if they need, um, can I cook you some meals? You know, if they're looking to just ease up their budget, can I help you with your budget? Can I help you with getting out of debt? You know, I did it and I would love to give you some advice. So still be a friend and still offer your friendly advice and services, but money is not going to be an option. And I think that's totally fine. And I'm with you on that. And anyone else listening, rule of thumb, if someone asks you for money and you can't really part with it without being okay with the probability, the high probability that it will not get returned, don't do it. And it's not unfriendly of you because the reality is, is if you lend money to your friend and then that friend cannot pay you back, you're more likely to harm the relationship to sever the relationship at that point, as opposed to nipping it in the bud right now and saying, I'm so sorry. I would love to support you. I can't do it financially, but is there another way? Please let me know. I'd like to help. That's it. That is what's happening, my friend. Okay. Elena, Ellie, thank you so much for your question. I hope that helps a lot of listeners. Stacy says, hey, Farnoosh, my husband and I own a two-level flat in Chicago. We live in one unit with our four-year-old and we rent out the other. Unfortunately, our unit is not ideal for us, but I like the idea of keeping the rental income. I'm stuck in my decision to renovate our place Um, I'm also considering selling it to buy another place, but then I would lose the rental. Should I hang on to this long enough to get enough money to buy a new place? Uh, She's kind of just not sure what to do with this property. And she says that one more detail, we've only fully owned the property for a year. Um, So we don't have a lot of equity in it yet. All right. So I had a guest on the podcast recently who is the the head of partnerships at Realogy, which owns Cobalt Banker, Century 21, really smart guy, Eric Chesin. He's a homeowner. And we talked about kind of what you're alluding to, which is what is when is it the right time to make a real estate move? I think how you answer this is where do you want to be in a couple of years with your family? What's the story you want to tell yourself in a couple of years? And it could be that, you know, despite the fact that we had good rental income in this two-story home, we were able to sell at a good time, good meaning, you know, as far as where we were in our life and where we were and where we were going to be able to then use the, the equity that we had in the home to buy something else that was a little bit more fitting for our family. You know, uh, look, I'm a kind of in a similar situation. I live in Brooklyn. I've, I do have equity in my home, but we're, Tim and I are like, okay, do we stay? Do we take out a home equity line of credit and rent this place out, use that line of credit to buy our forever home somewhere in the suburbs? And is it a good time to sell? Is it a good time to buy? And the latter of, is it a good time to buy, sell? That I think is not really the bottom line when you're trying to make a decision that's going to impact your life goals. You know, our life goal is to eventually be somewhere 
more spacious, to have a backyard, to be somewhere where the public schools are fantastic. And it's not necessarily going to be here in Brooklyn for us. So we know that it's going to mean somewhere outside of New York State. But that's not like it's 10 years down the road. It's probably a couple years down the road. So right now is the time to be planting some seeds. So we're thinking about selling our apartment, renting for maybe a year in Brooklyn, and then eventually making the jump to the suburbs because that's going to buy us some time to figure out really where our next move should be. You never want to jump into a new suburb cold. You know, you want to do your research, spend some time in that town because it's a big, big investment and you want to make sure that you're pretty sure about it, that you're not just kind of going on a hunch. So for you, maybe it's that you sublet your apartment, your section, right? So that you can continue to keep this home and then you rent for a little bit into something a little bit more amenable for your family and then reassess the situation. Um, you know, thinking about baby steps, you know, could there be a scenario where you're in the middle a little bit, where you're giving yourself some opportunities some you're buying yourself some time to really be able to think through things more? Again, maybe rent, subletting your unit out, your floor, so that you're able to still make the mortgage on this home. You can still, um, you know, make a little bit of cash flow every month and then go out and rent something for a year to give yourselves the opportunity to explore neighborhoods. Then also the home might appreciate in that year, right? And then you could sell it with a little bit more equity to go and then buy your next home. I'm warm to that idea. I like the idea of like just finding a middle ground at first. I don't know. Let me know what you think of that. Does that make sense? Does that sound appealing? Carrie has a question here and she says... My husband and I, again, about rental properties, want to buy a rental property and want to know some ways to come up with our down payment. We could save some cash. However, it was recently recommended that we refinance our home and pull from our equity. It's a great source of money. It's about $200,000 in equity, but our interest rate on our mortgage right now is low. It's 3.25% and refinancing it could see it increase because right now rates are hovering at around 4%. What should we do? It's true. If you refinance this home, if you do what's called a cash out refi, you definitely can benefit from having some of that equity in the bank, in your hands. However, you're refinancing. So two things are going to happen. Your loan balance is actually going to go up because basically what you're doing is you're taking out a new mortgage. It's going to be the mortgage plus whatever you're borrowing from your equity. You're going to get that as a check, that whatever cash out that you do. But do do keep in mind that your balance will go up. Your interest rate is going to go up given the environment right now where rates are. And there's also going to be probably closing costs that could be bundled in to the loan amount. But you're looking ultimately at a bigger, bigger amount of money that you're going to owe every month for your home. So just be sure you can afford that before, you know, jumping into this next rental property. The other way you could go about this is just taking out a home equity line of credit where, you know, you can borrow against the equity in your home. And, you know, with HELOCs, you can't borrow the 100% of that equity. You can't take out all 200,000, but maybe you could do 75% or 80% that interest rate would likely be wherever the current rates are, 4%, maybe a little bit higher. So 
think about that. And I would not borrow the max that you can borrow. I would try to be pretty conservative. You know, you want to keep some equity in your primary home. You don't ever want to over leverage, right? Get yourself in a situation where you've taken out all the equity or a lot of the equity in your primary home and you've plunked it into another property. What if the market tanks, right? Then your rental property value goes down, your home property value goes down. You've got these two loans. You might be underwater. I'm not saying that is going to happen, but that is a risk. So when you are borrowing against your home, you always want to just you know, be conservative, as conservative as possible. Maybe it's a hybrid of taking a little bit of cash out of your home, using a little bit of your savings. So you're not putting your home too much on the line, if that makes sense. And she says to me, thank you. I love all the advice, Farnoosh, plus hearing you dabble into a fun side gig for your stand-up. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. I'm having a blast with the stand-up. I want to do more for sure. So stay tuned if you're in the New York area. I might be doing a couple of gigs in the fall. Thanks so much and good luck with your rental property. Okay, question, last question here from Phoebes on Instagram. She says she's a longtime fan, been listening for years. Thank you so much, Phoebes. She has a question about, oh wow, this is good. A lot of real estate today, home hunting in Brooklyn. She is looking for a two family and the budget's tight. So it is slim pickings. I know what that feels like, Phoebes. She has found a house in East New York. Yeah, there's a part of Brooklyn called East New York. That's not confusing. <laughs> I am I am hearing about this, Phoebes. I'm hearing about East New York being the next frontier. So your, your, your instincts are good. She says, it checks off all of my boxes. However, I did a walk around the neighborhood last night and I did not feel safe. It's near a housing project that has multiple reports per week of gunshots, and there's always something going on at the train station. As a single female with no family, I'm concerned. Yeah, I would be too. Her question is, I know East New York is up and coming. Should I purchase the place and renovate it for the sake of the potential equity, or are my safety concerns legit and I should look elsewhere? I know it's slim pickings for me. I really want to own a family, a multifamily home and build wealth and stability. This is tough. I don't know if this is the right place for you to live in. And I'm saying this as female to female, right? If I I would not feel safe if 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 there's reports as you say about multiple shootings and and you know, you got to trust your instincts. You got to feel safe where you live. Period. That said, if you think this is a great investment opportunity for you, where you could rent it out to some other person who would feel comfortable, that could be worth exploring. Like looking at how much it would cost to purchase this, to renovate it. What can you rent it out for? Are you going to make some cash flow? Are you going to be cash flow positive? And then I do think that East New York is going to appreciate, much like Crown Heights and Bedford Stuyvesant have and will continue to. You know, you want to do a lot of research. You want to talk to people maybe who have moved in in the last year. What are they experiencing? Do they have regrets? This probably isn't the right place for you right now, but maybe for somebody else. And if you can make cash flow positive every month, hey, I think you're onto something. All right. Thank you so much, everybody, for these questions. A lot of real estate questions. It's an interesting time in the real estate market, right? Interest rates are historically very low. We're hearing about the Federal Reserve reducing rates um, at the next few meetings. So that is going to bode well for borrowing for the purposes of housing. However, what will it mean for the rest of the economy? Time will tell. A lot of people talking about the recession. We've been talking about a looming recession on this show for 
the last 18 months. And it seems like now it's becoming more of a daily conversation in the press. So my advice is just, you know, cash is king during a recession. If a lot of you are thinking about borrowing because interest rates are low, just be careful, right? You don't want to over borrow. You don't want to over leverage. If interest rates are low, but the rest of the market is not good, meaning you don't have a job because the job market's not good or the stock market's not good. I think that you got to try to balance it out. And the best thing is to have a rainy day account is to make sure that if you're doing nothing else right now and you're worried about the recession is you're saving your money, keeping it in cash. Not, I'm not saying stop investing for your future, but I'm saying if you don't have a three to six month rainy day reserve to help you pay your bills, pay your mortgage, pay your rent, feed your family in the event of a, of a job loss, I think that's priority. That's it's always a priority, but it's especially priority right now. Liquidity is going gonna, is gonna to be the name of the game. All right, everybody, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Looking forward to checking out more of your questions on Instagram. And again, if anyone knows someone at Dancing with the Stars, call me. Thanks so much. And I hope your weekend is so money. Money.